Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. April 17th, 2016. While his father is out of the house, a young boy sees his mother leave their apartment with a man he recognizes, but whose name he doesn't know. Her husband thinks she's away with friends. The friends think she's home with her family. It takes nearly a week for anyone to realize that 30-year-old Thai immigrant Pa Pao is missing. This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by guest reader, Rainbow Dickerson. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. You know, I've been doing this for a while, so I'm pretty accustomed to coming across cases with little information. We we did do that whole episode on missing white woman syndrome, which we talked about little information available in cases. And I just wanted to check in to see like how you were processing that or what your thoughts are on when we encounter stories like that. I think it's something that surprises me, but I think it's also something that like as we keep going through case after case and kind of coming to the same thing over and over again, it's making me angry each time. Like that, not only that there's like so little information, but that there's so little attention. And just, I guess before I started doing any of these things with you, I just figured that when, like when somebody went missing anywhere or if a body turned up anywhere, everybody would know about it because I thought that it was that important, you know? But the more and more we talk this over, the more I learn that, like, if there's certain things going on in the case or if there's just not much information, it really doesn't get out in the media and we really don't know much about it. I think it's like a two-part thing where there's a problem with not having enough information leads to not having enough awareness about it, like, in the media. But I don't understand, like, it seems like the less information we have should lead to more questions put out for the media like in, through the media yeah like why is like, this happening why is this happening but also like if you don't have much information about somebody putting out more information for like those helplines and stuff like that that we've talked about in the past seems like that would be the best route because we would be able to maybe find someone who does have more information than we have right yeah yeah so like broadcasting it exactly yeah. so the story that we're talking about today is a missing woman who has very little information and we're going to explore kind of what we know what we don't know and also put her disappearance into a broader context to kind of understand like what's going on for her when 30 year old pap Howe went missing from aberdeen south dakota on april 17th 2016 her case 
was complicated by a few things. So I'm going to say there that there are these factors that are influencing it. First, there was a delay in her being reported missing by about a week. And then there's very little coverage of her disappearance beyond like a few local news articles. In fact, my notes file for her disappearance are actually some of the shortest we've dealt with so far. That's really like a sad way to start her story, isn't it? Yeah, like That's here's just, there's a story. not much information. Mm -hmm. So when she finally was reported missing, who reported her missing? It was a combination of family and friends. So it really took But it a, still took a, a week. Yeah. Okay. So to counteract this lack of information sort of publicly available about her in the media, we did ask for a case file and we were pretty much shot down in the nicest way possible, I'll say, but it also means that creating an episode about her disappearance is complicated. But one of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes, particularly that one about missing white woman syndrome, is that we don't want to shy away from cases like hers because that just means that we as voices kind of in this space are also complicit in an ongoing silence around her missingness and the missingness of other women of color. I'm glad that we're not skipping cases like this because then we would be going right back to that thing that I said at the beginning of like, the less information is out there, the more we should be trying to do something to get more information. So, I mean, if somebody listening to this podcast knows something or, you know, it, it's just a great way to get the awareness out there about some of these cases. Right. So, Pa, I've also heard her name pronounced Pa, but we're going with Pa, was born in Thailand probably around 1986, since today she would be 38 years old. She was married to Sado, and it seems that they married in Thailand, and some of their children may have been born there. And... Again, I really hate that so much of what I'll be saying today is like so vague like this, but again, there are so few details about her and her disappearance, both. So as we move through this story, do we have any ideas of what happened to her? Are we going to hear that as we go? We, we are going to hear about the events that kind of led up to her actual like last sighting by family members. But before then, we're going to try to trace her time moving from Thailand to the United States and kind of what she might have experienced here as a Thai immigrant. Sure. And so I'm not sure exactly what drives them to move to the United States, but the first indication that I have them living in the U.S. looks to be around 2010. And immigration from Thailand to the United States has always fluctuated, but at times of like particular political and civil unrest in Thailand, the numbers do trend upwards. And around 2009, there was one of those periods of political unrest in Thailand, which means an increase in immigration as people were kind of looking for some place of stability. We moved here in 2010. So she was 30 when she moved. Yeah, she's only 38. She's younger than us. And she's like, she moved here the same year we did from a different country. Yeah. Just, yeah. Pat and Saw end up in Lincoln, Nebraska, largely it seems because he has family living there, but also because Lincoln has a large population of immigrants. Roughly 30,000 have settled there, which is like 10% of the city's population. And so when Pat and her husband arrive, they are able to settle into the neighborhood where there's a strong population of other newly arrived immigrants. I just don't think of Nebraska as being like a hub for immigrants. Yeah, actually, Nebraska is 
kind of happening. I have considered moving to Lincoln. Really? I have, yeah. Um, do, I, do I have to, like, research this area a little more and see? Because I, I, it's just not even, like, anything that's been on my radar. Yeah, so, like, the, the arts are thriving in Nebraska. It's an interesting place. So I spent a lot of time researching Lincoln, you know, much prior to now to see if I wanted to live there. Well, that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to get a sense of, like, why why Lincoln for immigration? Right. Right. And why is this a place people settle specifically? And so now this information was collected in 2019, so almost a decade passed when Pat and Saw were there. But the New Americans Task Force wanted to look at who was immigrating to Lincoln and what sorts of challenges those populations faced. They surveyed roughly 500 individuals and then published their findings. What they found out was that Lincoln was home to immigrants from approximately 150 different countries. A good number of the survey participants reported coming from Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar, Iraq, Mexico, Sudan, Kurdistan, and Guatemala. The task force cautions that this survey, like, is just like those who opted to take the survey and not necessarily an accurate representation of the exact, like, dynamic of the population. But we can start to see that, like, Lincoln is a choice for a hugely diverse population. The more you know. Now, one thing of note that I do want to point out is that the survey, they asked about languages spoken some of the participants spoke Thai, but a good number of the participants said they spoke Karen. Karenic languages are found through parts of Myanmar, also known as Burma, and along the borders of Thailand. There is enough of a community in Lincoln that speaks Karen that it is, in fact, one of the primary languages that the New American Task Force translated the survey into. And that's particularly important because Pa spoke limited English, but she did speak both Thai and Karen. It's likely in this community she was able to communicate regularly with those around her outside of her family group. I don't even know if those are standard languages in New York. Are they? Thai or... Yeah. So... Like, what is offered in New York State as languages? Yeah. I don't think you are going to encounter much Thai or Karenic languages. Huh. No, I'm curious. I'll probably look it up later. And since I was recently on the board of a literacy organization that gives access to English language learning, I want to emphasize here that this doesn't mean that someone in her situation isn't interested in learning English. In the survey, respondents were specifically asked about the importance of English in their lives, and practically every respondent agreed or strongly agreed that it was important to their long-term goals. The survey did reveal that the longer people lived in Lincoln, the more likely they were to respond that they were strongly agreed that it was important. And the task force hypothesized that new arrivals to the country were more focused on short-term survival and had fewer resources and energy to devote to English language learning than those who'd been here longer. You can just imagine how stressful it would be too, like to move from a country that you've been in your whole life to a new country, probably not under the best circumstances, and then have to learn an entire language on top of everything else you're dealing with. Right, that you like literally cannot communicate with people around you. Right, it's just, it's got to be really an unsettling feeling. Yeah, I can't imagine how disorientating or stressful to like try to navigate any services or like daily tasks without like having those language skills. Right. 
So Pat, yeah, are trying to navigate this new country with their children. And while on the one hand, it's great that they're near family, the downside to being near family is sometimes being near family, mm-hmm. right? It's like right. the pro and the con. I think we all know what that means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're feeling that? I am feeling that. <laughs> now, there's some information that Pat had conflicts with her in-laws, primarily their criticism that she let her children run in the street and provided little supervision. By this point, she likely had at least two children, and here I'm going to mention that I'm intentionally being vague about them, as we do with all of the underage children of missing women. Right. They're still out there somewhere. We need to respect their privacy. Exactly. And these children are all still underage. Mm-hmm. It's around 2012 that they have their third child, and in early 2015, they have their fourth child. At some point in there, Pat and Saw decide to move to Aberdeen, South Dakota. Newspaper reports say this happened around 2014, but public records suggest it could have been early as 2012. Whatever the case may be, Aberdeen was likely a vastly different experience for them. For starters, though Aberdeen is South Dakota's third largest city, its population is just under 30,000, which means like tenth of the size of Lincoln. And as a reminder, Lincoln's immigrant population alone is 30,000. And so that means that despite both cities having similar population demographics in terms of race and ethnicity, the community sizes are so much significantly smaller in Aberdeen. Right. So just Lincoln's immigration population is the same as the entire population of Aberdeen. Yes. So that's, yeah. Yeah. Quite a big difference. Yeah. So I can't, like, you go from probably this community where there's, like, a wealth of people that you can communicate to, to a dramatically smaller portion. Smaller, less diverse, probably, right? So the cities themselves, like, statistically, if you take the percentage of the breakdown of race and ethnicity, right, are the same, but, like, but now like those it's like, just, like, smaller groups of people right, now like because of size. A thousand families scattered throughout instead of... 30,000. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. just, it's still going to make it harder to meet other people like you. Which, speaking of, both Pat and Saw worked at Molded Fiberglass in Aberdeen. Molded Fiberglass opened in 2007, and I promise there's a reason I'm talking about them. It's a facility that was specifically designed to make wind turbine blades. And while the immigrant population in Aberdeen was relatively small compared to Lincoln, Molded Fiberglass's workforce was diverse. In one of their press releases, they said that their workforce was highly international with a significant number of Spanish-speaking and Karen-speaking teammates. And for Workforce Development Summit, their senior VP said that 65% of their workforce was minority, with 47% of their total employee base being Asian. Okay, so it's still a fairly diverse area, or at least in this, is this a factory? Yeah, so it's a factory designing these wind turbine blades. Okay, so so a lot of the employees are, are actually minorities also and possibly are able to communicate with this family. Right, well, so in 2016, which is like a bit after the time that she worked there, there were about 150 employees working on the production line and as translators who speak Karen. A lot of them are refugees from Myanmar who had spent years along the Myanmar-Thailand border in camps. And the Karen had been forced into these camps because of repeated attacks by the military government. And so many were refugees to the United States to escape that. So specifically the 
the ones working at the molded fiberglass company were refugees specifically yeah. ref- refugees okay mm-hmm. Mike, Pat, and saw many of the employees at Molded Fiberglass had arrived in Aberdeen after living in the United States in another city first. But Molded Fiber provided steady and growing employment, so it was a draw for many of them to move up to South Dakota. But to emphasize this for a second, roughly 80% of their workforce was considered hourly wage earners, with only 20% being called their professional workforce. Okay. How much of their 20% of their professional workforce were were immigrants? Yeah, they um, did not specifically talk about that in okay. their workforce development. Just, but yeah, it is an interesting... I'm just wondering, like I, I'm guessing that the 80% is going to be more of the immigrant people that moved in. Right, because like it's important to know that like when people are refugees to this country, they have worked very often in professional jobs and places in their own countries, right. but then are not able to find employment in those fields here. And so they often end up in hourly wage positions. Like I know someone who was a doctor in Eastern Europe and here is not. Right. Sometimes there's either a language barrier or some of those degrees don't translate right. over here. So, yeah. So now in the Workforce Summit presentation from the senior vice president of Molded Fiber, he says that 50% of the employees at the plant didn't speak English, but he emphasized that English language proficiency was a key component of their employment needs since they needed to convey clear instructions and technical information to their employees. And he says that's why they've developed an ESL program and a program to help employees get their GEDs. Are GEDs really going to help them learn English specifically? I mean, it would mean that they are likely experiencing educational opportunities. Those would be provided in English. It would be helpful, but it's like extremely complicated because a lot of ESL courses are really designed to like push forward conversational English Mm -hmm. and proficiency in a language. But if we're talking about like language proficiency when it comes to like a technical level, like that's a completely different okay. ball game. Like I can muddle around in French or Italian, but if you take me any place to discuss something technical, even something that I know a lot about, I might not have the language, those words specific to those fields. Okay. So I'm not sure if she was involved in these ESL or GED pathway classes, but I do know around 2015, so the year before her disappearance, she was working towards getting her U.S. citizenship. And the reality for Pat, even working in this place that says it values language learning and in a place that does include a large workforce of Korean-speaking individuals, it wasn't great. And I know that might seem like weird because she did have those things available to her in this workforce, but imagine working somewhere where you can only talk to half of your colleagues and then you can start to see like how difficult it would have been for her working in this workplace. We'll be back in a moment. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Right. Can she even speak to half of them? Yeah, so she can only communicate with those who speak Thai or right. Karen. And so, yeah, that's less than half. Because mm-hmm. they were lumped in as Asian. So there could be other languages in there too. Right. So, yeah, so she might even be down to just like a small portion. A small percentage that she can actually com- communicate with. It was so hard for her that a female coworker at Molded Fiberglass said that Pat often was quiet at work. And on top of that, she would often get upset when she couldn't understand what was being said to her. This coworker said she'd have to be with someone who could help her translate. This coworker also said that there was one time she tried to communicate to Pa that she needed to go to HR to fill out some paperwork, but Pa just smiled and nodded and didn't move, indicating that she didn't understand what was being asked of her. Do we feel like that's just a language barrier thing, or do we feel like there's like also some stress or something involved? I think there's a huge language barrier issue here because the way that she was at work was drastically different than how she was outside of work. So when she was encountering other people that spoke Thai or Karen, like the local owner of an Asian grocery store, he said when she came in three to four times a month, she was pretty talkative to him. Okay. So she just wasn't, she was just feeling out of place at work, it sounds Yeah, so despite all these things that the company said it provided, on the other hand, when you're surrounded by a large population of people you can't communicate with, Mm -hmm. it's got to be pretty difficult, right? Right. Now, there's little information about her medical health or her mental health. And we know that publicly, it's reported that she struggled with both depression and anxiety. And her husband, though, said that she also had a history of seizures, and she would have these when she was particularly upset. Okay. And no one has said specifically what the root cause of these seizures are, from what I can tell, but apparently it's her medical condition, maybe these seizures, that leads to her losing her job at molded fiberglass. One of the things the VP said specifically in his workforce development talk was that the wind turbine blades are highly engineered products that require precision in their manufacturing process. He said, for an example, that they were qualifying blades, like basically doing a full scan of it and comparing it to the drawings for the blade. The blade was rejected for being less than 10 thousandths of an inch off. So it makes sense that it would be an unsafe place for her to work or she wouldn't be the right fit for like this really precise right that's really fiddly within a ten thousandth of an inch and like trying to communicate that to somebody who's right like not your language yes it's like very fascinating to me that you've got basically this workforce development senior vp asking like these things of workers and like saying oh we've got these programs available for them 
but also asking like really precise things like which which is probably a safety thing i can see needing the precise thing but it's it's just hard to do it i guess the way they're doing it i mean personally to me it just seems incredibly stressful yeah Right. So despite being a smaller town, Aberdeen is a place where there are a lot of manufacturing and industry jobs. So despite her health issues that made her leave molded fiberglass, she was able to get a job at Demcota Beef in early 2016. So from what I can tell, Demcota is located roughly three miles away from where Pa and Sa's apartment is, and Demcota does beef processing And the name might be familiar because it was the site of one of the larger and earlier COVID-19 outbreaks. Yeah, I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) Doesn't sound fun. Yeah, well, I don't know if you remember from ages ago in 2020, but they were actually a lot of outbreaks in meat processing facilities. I do remember those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this was one of those locations that was making the news because of how many workers were Mm-hmm. getting COVID. Oh, I definitely remember them. It's just like, it's like a, yeah. Yeah. Not a memory anyone wants to revisit. No. This meat processing plant had been shuttered since 2012 and was then picked up in a bankruptcy auction and reopened in 2015. In the testing phase, they were slaughtering around a dozen to a hundred head of cattle a day and hoped to get up to full capacity in the second quarter of 2016. At full capacity, they had the equipment and were capable of processing roughly 1,000 to 1,500 head of cattle each day. Given this, it's not surprising that she easily found work there since it looks like they were in a stage where they were ramping up productivity. This means that she was working in a particularly grueling and fast-paced environment. Yeah, it sounds significant. They went from not that many to quite a lot of cattle that they're processing here. Yeah, so if we're in late 2015, they're doing the small amount. By the second quarter of 2016, they hope to be up to full capacity. That means like every day they're probably ramping up their productivity quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Around this time, Pat and Sauce seemed to be having some issues in their marriage. In the course of their marriage, she would have times where she would leave for a few days, and this seemed to be happening in the early months of 2016. Her husband says later that they'd been fighting a lot and that she had blocked him on social media, and this was one of the center points of their arguments around the time of her disappearance. Huh. Okay. Now, Sauce also says that around... The time that Pa started working at Demcota, she also started seeing someone else, and this man also worked there. So that makes sense why she would want him off her social media. So they're not getting along, and now it seems like she's moving on. Right. I mean, they're still living together. They have children together. But if she's, you know, starting a new relationship and that's becoming a tension point for them, that all makes sense. Well, now think about how hard a divorce would be in this situation, too. Like right. actually like moving out on your own when you're already in an, a different country, you have young kids, like their marriage might be completely over and they're just still living together. Is that what what's happening here? I mean, you know, in interviews later, like you can tell that he wants his wife back and he's like deeply upset by her disappearance. So I'm not sure exactly where they are in the stage of their relationship Okay. Or, you know, what might have happened if she hadn't disappeared, but they were going through some stuff at the time. Well, I feel like just the whole situation is stressful and maybe maybe she was just going through a lot and having a, a confusing time. Right. And so this brings us to the day of her disappearance. And there's two timelines here. In most news reports about her disappearance on April 17th, it says that she was last seen at 7 p.m., but her name is account and elsewhere it's listed at 11 p.m. And I'm not sure why there's this discrepancy between the two times, but 
but it does kind of change the sequence of events. So we're going to go with like the 7 p.m. angle. Okay. Now, according to Sa, he decides to take his youngest son, who is about 17 months old, to the park to play. They actually don't live that far from a park that has a small playground. This leaves Pat at home with her other children who are, at this point, 10, 8, and 5. So Saw says that he doesn't get home until about 7 p.m., and when he gets there, Pat isn't there, but the three kids are. Okay. And one of the things I've seen online is, of course, people being suspicious of the husband and her disappearance. Right. I mean, a lot of the time people go right for that. Like, even even I'm sitting here right now thinking, like, are you going to end up telling me it was her husband? Well, I get it. Like, you know, look for first the romantic partner and they were having a strange relationship. Right. They were recently fighting. They have a lot of kids. They're in a new place. It's She's like, got a new relationship. Yeah, there's a lot going on. But one of the things that I see specifically is speculation that he couldn't have taken the baby out to the park because you wouldn't do that at that time because it would be dark or because of the weather conditions because it would be cold. And I have to say, as someone who lives in a northern climate at a similar latitude, if it's April, like, then the babies are out and about. Also, if we even have, like, 10 minutes of warm weather, <laughs> we're using it. Yeah, the babies are outside. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, to double check my assumptions here, I did check the outdoor conditions for April 17th in Aberdeen. First, sunset was at 8.24 p.m. on April 17th, which means if he returned home by 7 p.m., there's actually plenty of daylight left. Mm -hmm. Second, the weather that day was in the high 50s, and while it would have been briskly windy at that time that they were out, it doesn't start raining there until after 9 p.m. I mean, and to be fair, like, we live in the north. Sometimes right. our kids are outside playing in 30-degree weather outside at 4.30 at night, and it's pitch black. Right, and you're, like, turning on the lights for them. Yeah. Right. So, like him taking his 17-month-old to the playground at this time of day or with these specific weather conditions does not ring any alarm bells for no, me. No, I don't think we can really judge him based on that. Yeah, so the internet rumors can... Calm down on that one. A little bit. I mean, give him a little bit of leeway here. In any case, when Sa gets home, he assumes that his wife has left to go to a friend's house. It's only later through a combination of friends not hearing from her and her not reporting for work that anyone realizes that this time she hasn't just taken off for a few days, but is in fact missing. At this point, about a week after she was last seen, she was reported missing. So her husband waited a week. Well, so he thinks that she's like gone off and is staying with friends, which wouldn't have been unusual for her. So she did do that? She would disappear at a week? A week yeah, so she, she in the past, it seems, had, you know, disappeared for a few days here and there, and that had been kind of a regular occurrence in their relationship. Okay. Her friends, though, like, they think that she is home with her family, and it's only when she's not arriving to work that anyone is like, wait a minute. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. It still feels weird that she went a whole week before she was... It does, but, like, if you think that you know where someone is that entire time, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, I also can't make any assumptions about how much the husband and wife were communicating. Right, or how often she sees those friends, I guess. I guess there's a lot of different things involved. Her oldest son, who is, again, just a young child of 10 at the time, was the last member of her family to see her. He says the night she left, she got into a car with a man but he doesn't know the man's name. He did, though, recognize him. Do we think it's the man that she was dating? That, I think, was one of the 
initial assumptions. And okay. police did investigate the boyfriend um, to see if she was with him, but determined she wasn't. So that was not a pathway for them to go down. She did leave behind her belongings. So like all of her clothing, pictures of her family, like her parents were still hanging on the wall. So she didn't bring those personal belongings with her. So is that like an indicator that to them that she wasn't just going off with this man? Yeah, it didn't seem necessarily intentional for her to leave everything behind right? like that. And there's so little about her case. And like, I have so many questions that don't have answers. And she's one of America's missing, but like missing in the details and how little information there is about her in addition to being an actual missing person. Outside of South Dakota, police have contacted her family and friends in Nebraska and Thailand, but no one has heard from her. So she didn't go back to either of those places? It doesn't seem so. And we've spoken before about how when someone disappears, it creates kind of like a ripple effect. You know, it's not just the person who disappears. There's the repercussions it has for their family. Sa was left to be a single father to four children, and immediately that meant he had to stop his weekend shifts at molded fiberglass. Okay. And within three weeks of her disappearance, he was already talking about leaving South Dakota and returning to Nebraska. Again, this rings like a lot of alarm bells with people, particularly in online forums, but at the same time, you have a single dad with four kids. He has limited access to childcare, I'm guessing, and that likely would have continued making it impossible for him to work. So that situation would have gotten worse during the summer with none of the kids in school. Right. Is it also fair to say that he probably had more family and friends in Nebraska than he has here? Right. So like it his support group. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they have a lot of family connections in Aberdeen. So yeah, returning to Lincoln where he has family support in what would have been a traumatic time, particularly with four kids that he needs to care for. You know, it makes sense. Does it happen quickly after her disappearance? Yes, it does. But at the same time, if you have bills to pay... And and four kids. Four kids to take care of, you've got to make some decisions. Right. I mean, three weeks is a long time, too, when you're talking about little kids, because if one of them even gets sick in that time frame, who's watching them at this point while he's at work? Right. So he, he, he literally no cannot work. Group. Right. Well, yeah. At the same time, he says that he wanted to stay through the school year before he did his relocating. So he does do that. And it does seem that the family does relocate to Lincoln at the end of May of 2016. No. Oh, so at the three week mark, he was only talking about it. Yeah. So, you know. So he didn't even move. If we're, so if we're talking about, you know, if he went to like the very end of May, that's like five-ish weeks. Okay. Right. Yeah. So in the eight years that she's been gone, like the world has continued forward. Like he's had to make those decisions. Her kids are growing up. Her husband is back in Lincoln with his family. Demkota is like still doing its beef production, but molded fiberglass has shut down its wind turbine blade production in Aberdeen, leaving an employment gap for this largely immigrant workforce. So where did they all go? Yeah, so, like, that's one of the problems, like, if these companies are drawing in an immigrant workforce for whatever reasons, and then they ditch town, like, you have just stranded a large population of people. Right. Like, that's got to be incredibly devastating, particularly ones that have moved there to be close to their families. Yeah. Yeah. So I just have to believe that someone somewhere 
knows what happened the night that she disappeared and she left her apartment in Aberdeen. And I can only hope that she is safe out there somewhere. Do you feel like it's likely that she'll be found one day? I think investigators have said that it's particularly hard with an immigrant population when someone goes missing to be able to find them due to lack of documents. Also, you know, there's language barriers. So I'm not fully confident. I know they have ruled her out of a variety of different unidentified women or Jane Doe's. Okay. So they have investigated that angle for her. I'm stumped with this one just because there's just such little information about her. Right, like the general idea of it is, do they think she was kidnapped or do they think something happened to her? Do they think she ran away? Do they have any idea? I mean, it's really depressing to look at her case because there is just a small smattering of articles about her. So I'm not sure what sort of investigative theories they've been floating. We would have had more information if they'd given us their file, but um, it's considered like this active investigation. So it is considered active. So they might have some leads. They might have some theories. We just don't know them. We just don't know what they are. And I hope they do. And it's not just another case that's stagnating. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, I Wish I Had Somebody to Help Me Sing This, about Papau, 30, missing from Aberdeen, South Dakota, since April 17, 2016, read by Rainbow Dickerson. Rainbow is the proud daughter of a brave Thai mother who came to the United States during the first small wave of Thai immigrants in the 1960s. Rainbow is also of Rappahannock and Caucasian descent and is honored to lend her voice to this project. She became a TIFF rising star for her work in the feature Beans, for which she also received other awards and nominations. She can be seen in Netflix's live-action avatar, The Last Airbender, premiering February 22, 2024. Other selected screen credits include Gone, Chicago Fire, and Banshee. In addition, Rainbow has performed on Broadway and at many of the country's top theaters, recently closing an off-Broadway run of Manhattan at the Public Theater in New York City. Other favorites include the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, American Repertory Theater, Yale Repertory Theater, Mixed Blood Theater, San Francisco Playhouse, American Players Theater, and Native Voices. Rainbow currently resides on unceded Tongva Gabrielino territory, also known as Los Angeles, California. They didn't tell you how endless this place would be. Nothing but horizon and the thin margin between dusk and dawn. When you were a child, you never dreamed of cattle like this. In one moment lumbering through feedlots, the next their bodies hung in the slaughterhouse, fat girdling their carcasses like lace. And it's like this, your own life can feel like a corset. Sometimes you think about whales cutting through their own vastness of the seas while you're here. Your ribs stayed, breath catching in your lungs. Your lungs. America, we see your amber waves, your purple mountains. But what if we don't have the breath left to sing this song once more?
For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com <laughs>